Thank you very much, Travis and Laura. In light of the fact that the Lord leads us, not only does He lead us, He desires to lead us, and that means we should be striving to be sensitive and following. Take a moment in silence. You can share with the Lord your desire to be responsive to the ministry of God's Word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that after Adam and Eve chose to disobey you, that you pursued them and you provided garments for them. After the flood, you pursued Noah. You pursued Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You pursued Israel through the prophets. And we know that Christ came and you pursued us so that we could have a relationship with you. In light of your pursuit of us, it's our desire to be humble before you, sensitive to you, hearing your word, but not only hearing, but seeking to live it out in our daily lives. Minister to us this morning, for it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. As I read scripture, I usually have a lot of questions. And in light of our discussion on the body of Christ, relationships within the body of Christ, and looking at Hebrews, particularly chapter 10, some questions come to my mind in light of Hebrews 10. How does a local church trample the Son of God underfoot? How does a local church treat the blood of the covenant as unholy? How can a local church insult the spirit of grace? These questions spring from Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, which was written to believers in Christ. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 come after ten and a half chapters of Christ. Christ being better than Moses, Aaron, and the prophets. Also, ten and a half chapters of emphasizing the theme that genuine faith perseveres. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 10, 18, we find that Christ is lifted up. You have sacrifices in the Old Testament. They were offered repeatedly, but they didn't take away sin. Christ came along and he offered himself once for all. But the reason a perfect sacrifice had to be made is because God said perfection. So Christ is the only one who could supply that. But the sacrifice being made for sin. And when you think about the passage we're discussing this morning, all we see it in the context of the greatness of sin and the greatness of God's grace manifested in Christ. Keep in mind that in Hebrews 10... 19 through 21, Paul talked about, or the writer of Hebrews, some think Paul, others think not, but the writer talked about the confidence that we have in Christ. We have the confidence to enter the most holy place. And remember a picture of a tabernacle, you have the holy place, the holy of holies. And the priest, high priest would come into the holy of holies once a year, but when Christ died, the veil in the temple was torn giving us confidence to enter into the very presence of God. 
We also have a confidence because of a great high priest over the house of God, and that high priest is Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us and believers become a kingdom of priests. In light of that, the writer calls us to act. He calls us to draw near to God, to hold on swervingly to the hope we profess. to consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds and to not give up meeting together as some were in the habit of doing. Apparently, there's nothing new under the sun. They struggled in that day in spurring one another on to love and good deeds. They struggled in meeting together. They were tempted to withdraw from gathering together. And the writer of Hebrews is encouraging that action in light of the confidence that we have in Christ. In light of our confidence in Christ as a local church, there's a temptation to not respond as God desires. And as mentioned in verses 19 through 25. So in Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, he gives a strong exhortation. He gives a warning in verses 26 through 31. In 32 through 34, he says, remember history. And then in 35 through 39, he encourages them to respond. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, reading together verses 26 through 31. Hebrews chapter 10. 26 through 31. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As you read and as you interact and interpret the epistles, a couple of things to keep in mind, that they are addressed to local churches of believers, not individuals. So when you read Hebrews chapter 10, think about a local church, a body of believers. Don't think about me and Daniel and Lorraine, but rather think about the church collectively. The reason for that is what one does influences the entire body. We can't ignore the disobedience of other believers without it influencing the entire body. Long term has a tremendous impact. Therefore, it is wise to daily to weekly be sensitive to how others in the body of Christ are living and responding. 
See, what one believer does influences others, influences the whole body. Well, you say, what I do doesn't influence the whole body. Well, according to Scripture, it does. And that's brought out quite often in the epistles. So read and interpret Hebrews 10 as directed to a group or body of believers. Look at verse 26. If we, as a body, those to whom the writer is addressing, if they were to keep on deliberately sinning as a body, that doesn't mean everyone in the body was sinning, but some apparently were, and that affected the entire body. Look at verses 20, or 32 through 34. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Writing to a body. Some lost their property, some were persecuted. It affected the entire body. In verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. You know, addressing the body to be responsive to God. My encouragement is to do not merely seek to apply this passage to every individual. Think about it as applying to a local church, our body. We think and live as if we're doing, if we are doing well, or if I am doing well, everything is fine. The writer of Hebrews tells us that such thinking is a lie. If one part is disobedient, the entire body is influenced. The entire body is responsible for action. And I think for many decades, we in Christian America have concluded, I will take care of myself. If others are not obedient, it doesn't influence me. Stop. Such thinking is from the father of lies. And Paul uses the illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 of the physical body. When one part of your physical body is hurting, and the rest of your body says, we don't care about that, in time it's going to destroy the entire physical body. writing to a body of believers. This week, I was going up a set of steps and I went down years ago to the doctor for my foot and it's acting up again. What happens? The rest of my body does not ignore that. The rest of the body responded immediately. My brother who passed away from cancer started in a particular area of his body. The rest of the body fought that but in time lost its battle. But it affected, the cancer affected the whole body. The whole body of Orb died, not just one part of it. So as we think about this passage in Hebrews, see it as directed to a body. So if Jeff is disobedient, that affects the entire body. If Karen is disobedient, that affects the entire body. If Ashley is struggling, that influences the entire body. Again, keep in mind, he's writing to a body. 
Notice what he says in verse 26 of chapter 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive knowledge of the truth. The meaning of deliberately is voluntarily or spontaneously. You know, a slow drift from the truth. If we deliberately keep on sinning. He didn't say these people were, but apparently they're being tempted to. And apparently some of them were. Because he's encouraging them. But if we deliberately keep on sinning. This group of believers couldn't blame anyone else. Deliberate. Making a choice. Can't blame. Just choose to respond in a certain way. And he says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, the word for sinning and sins... At the end of verse 26, no sacrifice for sins is left, means to miss the mark. Sometimes we think of sins, we think of all kinds of acts of sin. Here he's talking about the idea of sin, hamartia, which is missing the mark. What's the mark? A relationship with God, fellowship with God is a pattern of life. If we deliberately keep on sinning, missing the mark. After we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. So if Liran is struggling and doesn't respond correctly, that affects the body. If we, you say, Liran's none of my business. Yes, he is. Is as much your business as my foot is the business of my body. We're a unit. If Lorraine is struggling after the passing of Bud and so on, that affects the entire body. The body is to be concerned about that. If we deliberately keep on sinning, missing the mark of this relationship with God day by day, and then he says... After you receive the knowledge of the truth. And what is the knowledge of the truth? Again, you look at the flow of the passage. Hebrews 1, 1 through chapter 10 and verse 18 talked about Christ. Christ is better than Moses, Aaron, the prophets, and so on. His once for all sacrifice. Why this once for all sacrifice? Because of sin. What is sin? Missing the mark of life. A relationship and a fellowship with God. After you receive the knowledge of the truth, understanding Christ and what he has done, and also realizing we can enter the most holy place because of Christ our high priest, the truth he talks about drawing near in verse 22 Hold on swervingly to the hope we have, spurring one another on and encouraging one another as we gather together. We deliberately keep on missing the mark that God has called us to after receiving this truth. He says, no, there's no sacrifice left. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire 
that will consume the enemies of God. Why such a strong warning? The writer is addressing a body of believers, have a relationship with God, who understood their sin, understood Christ and what he did, and apparently they're being tempted not to draw near to God. They're being tempted not to spur one another on to loving good deeds. They're being tempted not to hold unswervingly to the hope that they've been given. They're being tempted not to consistently gather with believers to encourage one another. See, that affects the head, Christ. Because Christ is the head, believers the body. And he's giving a strong warning because of the greatness of sin, but also the greatness of Christ. If you reject Christ, not a re, or not responsive to the truth, what else is there? He says in verse 28, anyone who rejects the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. The Lord is still impressing upon me the greatness of my sin. I was reading a book yesterday on idols. You know, in our culture. And after I read a couple chapters, I said to myself, Dan, you know, you struggle with idols. And part of me said, no, not you. You ever consider that a pastor may struggle with the idol of having to make sure that his church grows? So church calls the pastor and says to the pastor, now, we want you to help this church. Make sure it grows. He's just set up with an idol. So he becomes consumed with making the church grow rather than being faithful to Christ. So you may have a church leader that may battle with idols. You ever consider that a parent may have the idol of good children? Most parents, you know, the little baby comes along. Oh, so cute and so adorable. And everyone oohs and ahs over it. And dad says, I just want you to know that I'm planning for this baby to grow up and be a real good thief. Good at murdering and good at disobeying the law. You never hear that. And that's good. But if we're not careful, we can be consumed with our children being responsive to God and living good lives, that it becomes an idol that consumes us. I'm not saying the desire is wrong, but it can become too strong in our life. So when our children are disobedient, we, disobedient, we come down very hard on them, not because we want to develop them, because they've just embarrassed us. So when the writer of Scripture says, anyone who rejects the law of Moses and so on, there's a fearful expectation. Christ died for these sins. He's a perfect sacrifice. To reject that is very serious business. He says in verse 29, how much more severely 
do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? I read that verse. It really makes me stop and think. It goes back to the questions I asked earlier. How does a local church trample the Son of God underfoot? How does a local church treat as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant? How does a local church insult the Spirit of grace? Now keep in mind, he's writing to a body of believers. We have the knowledge of the truth, Christ and his body, trampling the Son of God underfoot as an unholy thing, insulting the Spirit and so on. How does that happen? Why such a strong warning? Basically, what is happening in the context? We ignore our confidence to enter the most holy place. Entering that most holy place through Christ. An example, we struggle, we're battling very, very deeply. And we say, where do I get help? And God says, enter the most holy place. You can come into my very presence through Jesus Christ. And we go minutes without going to God. We worry, we fret about whatever the situation may be. That's the start of trampling the Son of God underfoot because we're not entering the most holy place. It involves failing to draw near to God and to hold on swervingly to the hope we profess. Recently, got a call from someone affected me very, very deeply. And my mind kind of went this direction. Of what? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What am I going to do? How do I respond? If I continue that path very long, I'm trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant because I can draw near to God And I can hold on swervingly to the hope we profess. We get off the path when we don't draw near to God, when we don't hold on swervingly to the hope that we profess. Talking to a pastor recently, I said, how are things going? And he just kind of verbally shrugged his shoulders. And I said, be faithful. I didn't say it in these words, but in essence, I was saying, draw near to God and hold unswervingly to your hope. In light of the flow of the context, to trample the Son of God underfoot, to insult the Spirit of grace, is to fail to consider others, how to spur them on to love and good deeds. 
We get caught up in our own little world. We're not looking at a Bill or a Jane or a Karen or a Dan to see how we can spur them on toward love and good deeds. And that is, in light of the flow of the text, the beginning of trampling the Son of God underfoot, treating as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant and insulting the spirit of grace. How prone we are to be hung up with ourselves. I don't know if you're like that. That's drifting if we go that route very long. Also, we insult the spirit of grace, treat as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant, trample underfoot the Son of God when we give up meeting together to encourage one another. That's in the flow of the context. If we deliberately keep on sinning and so on, comes immediately after the items of drawing near to God holding on swervingly to the hope we profess, spurring one another on, and don't give up meeting together. Comes immediately after. God is concerned about his body. And we treat Christ according to the body. Then in verse 30, he quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 34 and 35. Verse 30 says, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. That was given to Israel, a redeemed people. Now keep in mind what happened with Israel. Israel came out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They were in the desert. They were a redeemed people. To this redeemed people, God gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Some 40 years later, well maybe more accurately, 38 years later, Moses is speaking to Israel. Moses gives an account in Deuteronomy, chapter 32, rehearsing some history. And the people he is speaking to, please understand, all of them are 60 or under, other than himself and Joshua and Caleb. Because the rest have already died. And it is that context. It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. He had judged a redeemed people. Those 20 years and over had died in the desert. Redeemed, yes. But still judged for their sin. That was given after years of strong discipline. Apparently, in light of the flow of this passage, in judgment or in Christ does not mean there's no judgment. In Christ, we have a relationship with God, yes. 
He has taken care of our sin, but apparently we may sin and not respond to it. And he disciplines us for that. So he says in verse 31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I read this passage and one day as I was studying it, I called another pastor and I said, how do you, or what do you do with Hebrews 10, 26 through 31? And he looked at the passage, he said, I'm not sure. He said, what does a commentator say? Well, I said, they kind of walk around verses 29 and 30. But it's a strong warning. The writer of Hebrews saying, Christ, once for all sacrifice. Don't walk away. Because there are consequences. The strength of the warning in Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 amplifies the riches of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. For our local church or any local church to move away from a passionate response to Christ's sacrifice is very serious. God's grace, once for all, or God's grace in Christ's once-for-all sacrifice influences desire. Let's consider a couple applications. We may become somewhat lax and spurring others on to love and good deeds, and consistently meeting together for corporate worship, but we think we're doing well. And you may be doing well as a person, but understand when we move from these items, we have already moved from drawing near to God and holding on swervingly to the hope we profess. Corporate body worship, meeting together, spurring one another on toward love and good deeds, holding on swervingly to the hope we profess, drawing near to God with a sincere heart. And I want to point something out. The corporate body worship and spurring on deals with the body. The holding on swervingly to the hope we profess and drawing near to God deals with the head, Christ. The holding on swervingly to the hope we profess and drawing near to God comes before spurring one another on in corporate body worship. As comes through so often in the epistles, you can't separate Christ from his body. So the way I respond to the body is my response to Christ. If I don't draw near to God, if I don't draw, hold on swervingly to the hope that I profess, I automatically will drift in how I respond to the body. As for, in terms of spurring them on toward love and good deeds. In terms of encouraging through meeting together. You can't separate the two. Just like you can't separate your head from your body. They're a unit. So when the strong exhortation is given in verses 26 through 31, it's in light of the fact that if you part from God, you're parting from the body. And apparently we have a tendency to do that. He's writing to the hearers in Hebrews that we're doing that or being tempted to do that. It's nothing new under the sun. We have the same temptation today. 
be seeing the greatness of God's grace. Respond accordingly. In essence, we could say, corporate body worship, spurring one another on, is the plant. Holding on swervingly to the hope we profess and drawing near to God is a root system. If the root system isn't healthy, it affects the plant. If the plant isn't healthy, it has something to do with the root system. You can't separate them. So I sense that as professing believers today, we, speaking to a body, referring to believers, are tempted to treat the Lord one way, but our jobs, our mortgage, the electric company, the phone company, in a much different way. There's nothing new under the sun. Israel, when you get to the last book in the Old Testament, what were they doing? They were abusing God. They were bringing flawed sacrifices to God. And God says, would you treat others this way? And the answer was, no, we won. Well, then why do you treat me that way? I will go to my job and I will give what I need to so that I get paid. Do I study other believers to spur them on to love and good deeds in the same way? I will make sure the electric company gets paid every month so that we still have lights. Am I equally passionate about gathering with believers to encourage them? The enemy works to lure us from drawing near to God, to holding on swervingly to the hope we profess, to lure us from spurring one another on to love and to good deeds, and to hinder us from encouraging others we gather for worship. Just a couple thought questions. Do we fail to take time to spur others on to love and good deeds? but have desire to watch TV. Why? Are we trampling Christ under our feet? Do we have time and a desire to update our Facebook and text, but we miss corporate services for many reasons? Why? Are we insulting the spirit of grace? Do we watch three or four hours of a football game, but struggle with desiring a 90-minute corporate worship service. Why are we treating as an unholy thing the blood of Christ? And I could ask other questions. But just stop and think. Very, very strong language being used by the writer. Because he loves the people he is writing to and he wants them to stay on track. So final application. Please do not buy into this lie. I can be responsive to Christ in doing well while other believers are not responsive to Christ. They don't influence me. Impossible. It's a lie by the author of lies.
The Spirit of God lives in the body. That is why sometimes you will have a burden for someone. They haven't said a word to you. The Spirit of God is working in you, spurring you on to give them a call or text them or whatever to loving, to good deeds. That is why Ray may share about a hassle. That is why some of you, when you heard was Ray in a hospital, that influenced you deeply. And you prayed for him and you wanted to respond. Because responding to him, you're responding to Christ. What one goes through, what one does, influences others. Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth, said, your body, you influence one another. We do. That's why he says, draw near to God. Hold on swervingly to the hope we profess. Spur one another on to loving good deeds. Don't give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, there's nothing new under the sun. The devil tempted back in the days of the book of Hebrews. He's tempted down through the ages and he tempts today. The writer of Hebrews says, Christ, draw close to him. Has the Lord spoken to you this morning? Are you willing to say, yes, Lord, I'll respond in light of how you spoke? If you say yes, it'll be obvious in the sense that you'll respond differently than you have been. It may not be obvious to everyone, but it'll be obvious to those that you're influencing in your life. The writer of Hebrews goes on to give some encouragement, an exhortation. But again, he's writing to a body of believers. Draw near. Hold on swervingly to the hope you profess. Spur one another on to loving good deeds. Don't give up meeting together some in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. And then the strong warning is in light of the greatness of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we as a body want to love you. We want to be faithful to you. <clears throat> we know since the beginning of the church that the enemy has been sowing his lies. And one of those lies is that the greatness of Christ is really not that great. The greatness of Christ once for all sacrifice is not really that great. Another one is that you can respond to the head, Christ, but neglect the body. Impress upon us, Father, that as we respond to Christ, we respond to the body. As we respond to the body, we respond to the Christ because... They're a unit. And may we grasp the strong warning in verses 26 through 31. Not to fear God, be afraid of you in a scared type manner, but rather 
to simply ask ourselves, are we drawing near to you? Are we holding on swervingly to the hope we profess? Are we spurring one another on to loving good deeds? Are we encouraging others through meeting together? And if we have drifted farther, to honestly acknowledge that. And to thank you for your grace in letting us know. And the strength of Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, I think comes through loud and clear that you are gracious and you issue strong warnings at times because you want us to persevere in our faith. May we be a body, Father, that is considering one another so we can spur each other on to love and to good deeds. May we be a body that is seeking to faithfully gather for corporate worship to encourage one another. Again, because of Christ. So humbly, Father, we bow before you. And humbly we say, yes, Lord, we want to respond to you. For your glory, because of your grace. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.